Please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke today, chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Today we'll be celebrating Palm Sunday, as is next, next Sunday being Easter. Today is traditionally celebrated as Palm Sunday. And we'll take a look at some passages today that reflect the events that took place that Paul, first Palm Sunday, really initiating what we often refer to as the Passion Week. This would be Jesus' final days of ministry before the cross and resurrection. And the scriptures are rich with all of the events that took place during that time. You know, I've, I've entitled today's message, Aligning the Heart. Aligning the Heart. This, uh, what we'll be looking at today... Um, is actually events that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. This Passion Week of Jesus, this final days of ministry, you know, moving toward the cross and the resurrection, they are clearly given to us in you know, all four Gospels. And as, as if the Lord is saying to us, you know, this, this is really a place of focus. This is really something of great importance that has happened in our spiritual history. And as we look at it today, we'll be looking at the events that took place on that Sunday uh, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, uh, often referred to as the triumphant entry or the triumphal entry, because he's going to come in and declare himself for the first time publicly and openly as the Messiah to the Jewish nation. He has been ministering for years now in Israel, but never really openly declared himself to be the Messiah. In fact, he was often, you notice, when he kind of did miracles, he would say, no, don't tell anybody about this. Keep this to yourself. His hour had not yet come. But now, at the beginning of the Passion Week, his hour has come. And he is now going to openly declare and present himself, uh, as prophesied through the Scriptures, as the Messiah to the Jewish nation. And so this becomes uh, really a place for us to learn the priorities uh, that were on the mind of God. As we see these events unfold, I think it can speak to us. This is what all of heaven was focused on, and it can speak to us today of what heaven, I believe, is still focused on and what our hearts should be prioritized and focused on as well. And with uh, that in mind, I'm going to ask you to... Um, uh, look with me there in verse 28. That's where we'll be starting. Let me give you just a little quick setting before we dive into the text. The triumphant entry is Jesus now coming into Jerusalem. Um, he has um, been kind of laying low specifically in days leading up to this event because the, the Pharisees are looking to arrest him. Uh, the high priest, some of the Jewish leaders, they're getting tired of Jesus kind of coming into fame, and now they want to actually capture him. So he's having to kind of live something as a, a renegade, kind of below the radar, but now he's going to present himself, and uh, it, there's a, quite a bit of excitement now in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. This is the same time that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The Passover was a, was a large religious holiday for the Jewish nation. Uh, historians record that you know, the, the population normally in Jerusalem at that time was about 600,000 people, and it would swell to 2 million people during this, this particular holiday weekend. 
so many coming in to celebrate Passover. You remember Passover. Passover was instituted by the Lord through Moses back in the days of the Exodus. The last kind of plague that came upon Egypt was the death of all the firstborn in the nation of Egypt. But God preserved his people through the Passover. They were to take a Passover lamb, they were to sacrifice that lamb, they were to partake of it as a meal in the family, and they were to take blood from that Passover lamb and put it over the doorposts of each home. And that night when the firstborn died, the Lord passed over each of the homes that had the blood of the lamb, uh, marking that God, they were one of God's people standing in faith. The scriptures tell us that Jesus has become our Passover. When John the Baptist saw Christ, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Paul himself in 1 Corinthians tells us that Christ has become our Passover. In the same way that death passed over the nation of Israel in their homes, so the curse of sin and death upon our lives has been passed over by the blood of the Lamb being marked on our lives as we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. So there's a great crowd gathered in Jerusalem. I mean, it's swelled up. Millions of people are there to celebrate Passover, but a, a special excitement about Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that it was just some days before Passover that Jesus was just outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany, which is just like a suburb, two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was there that Jesus performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Remember? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they were a family there in Bethany. Lazarus passed away. Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he'd been days in the grave, and he came forth resurrected. This spread like great news. It was all just, just before the Passover. So the people are excited. Is this miracle worker, Jesus, it, we've heard so much about him. We, we heard that he even raised some from the dead. Is he going to be coming to Passover? Could he be the Messiah? We want to see and receive him if he's coming to the Passover. So this kind of energy is in the city as Jesus is now preparing to enter Jerusalem. Now with that setting, look with me at verse 28. The first thing that we'll notice is that this Passover week for Jesus involved careful preparation, careful preparation. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, interesting that Luke records this detail. And as I mentioned, it's in the other Gospels as well. What we see is that Jesus has carefully prepared this day of his entry. This is not just things happening randomly. 
we ought to understand that Jesus' moving toward the cross was the careful plan of God. It, this was not men taking their, getting their hands on Jesus. The, the Easter, the Passion Week, is not about what men have done to Christ. The Passion Week is about what Christ has done for men. It is all what has in step with what Jesus himself is prepared. This colt, he'd already made arrangements with this owner that this donkey would be there and be ready. And I'll be sending men for this colt. And, when they, and if, if, if they come, ask them, why are you taking it? This is what they'll say to you. The master has need of it. And so Jesus has already carefully crafted and articulated this plan. And what it speaks to me about is that, you know, the Lord has a very specific plan and purpose, not only for Christ and his moving to the cross, but I think the Lord has things prepared for you and I as well. It's not just, you know, bad luck that Jesus got caught up in this political turmoil. This was all the Lord's plan. Even, even the death on the cross was something that the Lord had planned. We read that this morning in our bulletin, the prophecy of Isaiah. He himself bore our iniquities. He was bruised for us. He paid the price for our sin. This is God unfolding his divine plan. And the question is, does God have divine plans for you? Was it just Jesus that God has mapped out ministry and plan and purpose for? Or does he have something for your life as well? The scripture seems to indicate that all of us have a plan and purpose in the heart and mind of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Interesting. God has prepared good works for you and I. Just as Christ's works were prepared, even the details of his triumphant entry, so God has plans for you and I. Are we prepared for him? Are we as diligent as Jesus was being in making an intentional about carrying out the Father's divine plan for him? Are we as diligent for God to be able to uh, uh, fulfill his plans for us? I want to be careful. I want to be intentional about living my life in obedience and in fulfillment of ministry in Jesus. I, I, want, to, I want to be living for God on purpose. I want to be thinking about those things that he has called me and asked me to do. And I want to be pressing and moving toward that. I don't want to just be living as a Christian and say, well, God, just help it all work out. You know, I hope it works out today. I don't know what's going on, but boy, I hope somehow it all counts in the end. I think God has called us to be much more focused than that. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 in verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you pressing? Uh, are you trying to lay hold of that for which God has laid hold of you? This is the model we see in Christ. Very careful in moving toward what God had prepared for him, even the cross. The writer of Hebrews 
The writer of Hebrews, and I'll have this for you on the overhead, in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, put aside the weight, those distractions, and the sin, those things that would entangle you, and run with endurance the race that is set before you. God has a race for you to run. Are you running that race? Are you focused? Are you, are you, are you intentional about this, this, this plan that God has for you? And if you're not running that race, what race are you running? Are you running a race that when you get to the finish line, you realize it wasn't the race that he mapped for you? It wasn't even the calling that he had for you? And, and, and the disappointment that that will bring, realizing that you didn't run the race he has charted for you. How can I find it? How can I be sure? How can I know? The writer of Hebrews tells us, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus was very careful and purposeful in his race, which even included the cross. It says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He saw the resurrection. He saw that time when he would be seated down at the right hand of the throne of God, which he is today, interceding for you and I, having won salvation for us. He ran his race, and he is our pioneer. He is the one that we keep our gaze on. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you will run the race he has for you. And that's the key, is keeping your focus on him. I like the NIV's version. It says, fixing your gaze, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Let's move on in our text in the Gospel of Luke. Not only is there careful preparation that we see coming through the heart of Christ, we also discover in verses 30 through 40 that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Verse 37, then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This expression of worship, these are his disciples. These are those that have been following and have been waiting for him to come and ultimately reveal himself as Messiah. And now the day has arrived and this worship begins to just break forth in the heart of his disciples. A number of things, just some highlights that I, that I want to point out to you out of this this little section just about worship itself. First of all, we notice that worship is very expressive. It says that they rejoiced and praised God with a loud voice. This was not a quiet, somber moment. This was a, a celebration of Jesus coming to his, to his people. 
This was a, you know, there were palm leaves being thrown out before him. People were laying their clothes before him. Their voices were raised. This is a very expressive moment. And this, this is what worship should be. Worship should find expression. You know, you read through the Psalms and it exhorts us to sing, to clap, to make melody in our hearts, to shout, to, to dance, to kneel, to, to express your heart to God. Worship just held in the heart and never given expression is really something less than the biblical exhortation of worship. And we see that these folks are ready to go. They are, they are there to celebrate and to rejoice in what Jesus has become. Not only is it expressive, but we also discover that it's very intelligent. In other words, focus. They have something to say in their worship. For they were worshiping him for all the mighty works which they had seen. In other words, it wasn't just this aimless singing and emotion, but it was thoughtful appreciation for all that he has done. These people had, had been following him. They had seen the miracles he had performed. They had heard the teaching. It says in the scriptures that as Jesus taught, the people were astonished. Peter said, you have words of life. Where else can I go? Jesus, his words, his life, his ministry, his example, and of course, just the miraculous power, doing good wherever he went, bringing healing, bringing wisdom, bringing love, bringing a touch of God. I'm telling you, they, they were thankful in their hearts. There was something rising up for Jesus. And you know, you can bet that these people had problems. Don't you know some of the people worshiping there, they had, they had issues at home. They had troubles, they had trials just like you and I, but it didn't stop them from reflecting on the faithfulness of God in their lives. And you know, when you go through trial, that's sometimes the hardest time to kind of muster up any real expression of praise and worship. But there's something here, you know, reflect on his faithfulness. You know that God has met you at different times in your life. Maybe you're going through something difficult right now, but you know, God has been faithful and you can reflect on that. You can draw that up in your own heart and you can stir your heart to worship him because he's still worthy. He has been good to you. He has worked in your life. And that gives you faith and hope and confidence that even in this trial, God is going to continue to work and bring you through. There's a power and a, and a freedom in that worship and it, it brings strength to the heart and comfort. The next thing we notice about worship is that it always glorifies God. It's not about man. It's not about drawing attention to men. It's about exalting and glorifying God and his, his, his Christ. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They worship and give glory to Jesus. There is a focus on eternal things. Peace on heaven. It's not just about getting me through the, the here and now. They see God worthy of worship because of his eternal plan and glory. God has brought heaven to earth. God has come for us to save us, to bring peace with God through the forgiveness of sin and what Christ has come to accomplish. They're rejoicing in God's will being done on the earth for his glory. And worship should always have a view 
to the glory of God, to the eternal purpose and plan of God. It should be raised up above just the here and now to see the eternal things that God has accomplished for us in Christ. The next thing we see about worship is that worship always upsets the Lord's enemies. (laughs) Right? The Pharisees. They called from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't Don't you hear what they're saying? You can't let them worship you like this. Now, these Pharisees had seen the same miracles. Some of these Pharisees were witness to the very power of God. Think about the hardness and the blindness. Some of them were there watching him as as he was getting ready to perform a miracle. And all they could think about, never mind the miracle, never mind that only God's power could, could cause a crippled hand to open up and become well, never mind that, the only thing they could think about, is he going to do it on the Sabbath? Because that breaks all the rules. That's, that's our little, you know, we have a corner on rules around here. And if he starts breaking them, it diminishes us. And then everybody's going to think, you know, he's got the power of God, which of course he does and we don't, but we don't want people to notice that. And so they, they, they got, that. it was after that miracle when he straightened the cripple's hand because he did it on the Sabbath From that day on, they began to plan his destruction. we got to get rid of this guy. Think about that. Think in in the light of the love. Jesus asked them, is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? Is it okay for God's love to touch one of his own on the Sabbath? Are the rules that important to you? Is your little power, your little pride, your little world, is is, is it so blind that you can't see God's love wanting to touch your brother? Jesus was amazed at the hardness of their heart. They saw the same miracles. They too should have been worshiping him. They too should have been giving him the glory that was due his name. But instead, they were troubled because he threatened their petty concerns. And so they hated the idea of him being worshiped. You know, it was Satan who tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. None other shall be worshipped. The the devil, those that are self-centered, they will always be uncomfortable with worship, uncomfortable with expressions of love and adoration to God. But we see the answer from Jesus. Verse 40, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The final, my final thought there on worship is that worship is due. <laughs> Jesus said, look, if I, if, if I silence them, the very creation itself will rise up and, and sing and praise worship. The rocks themselves There is a passage in Isaiah talking about the future millennial return of Christ that you've probably heard it. It used to be sung in an old song. You know, the the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The scripture says that even all of creation is groaning for the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan of salvation to be completed. And Jesus says, oh guys, you're so petty. You're so... If I stop this worship now, even the creation itself, this is a moment. 
This is a moment when the plan of God's salvation for men is coming to fruition. All the thousands of years of prophecies have been pointing to this day. And you and I, we live in the looking back to that day. God's plan coming in this Passion Week of where He would pour out His Son unto death to redeem men unto Himself and make peace with God. It was a time to worship. It was a time to rejoice. Because worship, it shouldn't be forced. It shouldn't have to be something we manufacture. It should be something we just recognize as appropriate. He's worth it. He is due my worship, my love, my devotion. Anything that I can offer Him. I'm not going to let the rocks do my job. How about you? Right, the psalmist said in Psalm 150, verse 6, let everything that has breath, rocks don't have breath, but let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You and I were built to, to know Him. We were built to worship Him. We were built to love Him. We were built to be loved by Him. And that worship and that praise is an appropriate response to His goodness to us. Look on with me now in verse 41 back in the Gospel of Luke. The next thing we identify here is the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus and His desire to save. Verse 41, Now as He drew near, He saw the city and He wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a picture here, Jesus, as he comes into the city, as he looks over the city of Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you know that the Mount of Olives is kind of across a valley, uh, just across from the city. And as you come down, there's a walk coming down from the Mount of Olives that you have this beautiful view of the city landscape before you. And you can almost see Jesus as he takes in this view of the city, something in his own heart rises up and he begins to weep. Now these were the, he weeps over the nation of Israel, who for the most part missed Jesus as their Messiah. Some embraced him. There are disciples there worshiping, but he knows on the whole that the nation and its leaders and its spiritual leadership is going to miss him. They didn't recognize their own Messiah when he came. Now, he's not angry. These are the same, these are the same ones that are going to crucify him and put him to death. There's nothing resentful rising up in his heart. Instead, he weeps with a brokenness. He weeps over the lost opportunity. What could have been? What could have been to make peace with God if you would have but received God's offer of peace in the life of his son, Jesus Christ? Because peace with God can only be found in Jesus. And the heart of God still longing to save, even today. I imagine that Jesus still weeps over those that refuse to receive the offer of peace. What could have been? 
Instead, you have rejected your Savior. They wanted a political Savior. They wanted a Jesus that would do for them and give them the national pride and things that they wanted. They were looking for a Messiah that fit their earthly, worldly ambitions, not the Savior that God was providing, which was to save them eternally by redeeming them from sin. He prophesies. He says, you know, there's coming a time, Jerusalem, when you're going to be encamped by your enemies and they're not going to leave one stone upon another. It would be just a few years, some 30 to 40 years later in 70 AD, we know that Rome came, surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed it and left not one stone upon another. Jesus seeing this in their rejection of God, God allows their enemies to have their way. But he says, you did not know the time of your visitation. This speaks of timing, doesn't it? It it speaks of being mindful of certain timing events in your life. I do believe that God crafts divine appointments for us. There are moments. God is ever with us and and it's never too late. But I know that the Lord will design circumstance to bring us to a, a moment of truth, a crossroad, A time when the Lord is truly speaking to you and drawing you and offering you his love, his mercy, his plan, his purpose. And and Jesus is saying, you guys missed it. You did not know the time of your visitation. God came to visit. God came to your heart. He knocked on the door of your heart and you missed it. You weren't home or you were too distracted or you refused to open. Are you mindful of the time? Are you mindful that if you do not know the Lord, that this may be your time? This may be the moment that God is appealing to your heart. Receive Christ today. Make peace with God. Have your sins forgiven and begin to allow Him to be the Lord and Master and Savior of your life. Surrender your heart to Jesus. This may be your moment. Maybe you know the Lord. But you know, you can, we, even the, as Christians, we still have moments of visitation. I think there are still crossroads. There are still moments where the Lord is trying to move us, to speak to us, to stir something in our hearts. Are you living for Christ? Are you being used, uh, uh, wise with the time? Are you prioritized and aligned with the things that are clearly on the Lord's mind? Ephesians in verse 5, verse 15, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This is written to Christians. Redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Boy, if, if, if Paul thought his days were evil, I wonder what he would say of our day. And I wonder if he would say all the more, don't be foolish, but be wise. Redeem the time. You know, you only have this life to make use of the purposes that God has for you. You know, I'm not an old, old man, but I'm getting older. (laughs) It's interesting, a pastor friend of mine who's about the same age as, as me, we were talking sharing. We had a ride together up to a retreat and we were just talking and we were talking about the fact that, you know, we're we're getting a little older. (laughs) 
We don't have the same energy and enthusiasm, you know, that we used to have just physically, spiritually, mentally, but physically. And we were saying, you know, this is the time. If you're going to live for the Lord, we got to do it now. You know, I don't know what I'll be, you know, what good I'll be in 10 years from now. I don't know if I'll have the same strength, the same energy, the same capacity physically. Now's the time. Another friend of mine just recently lost his job. And he, was, and he called, and I'm praying for him. And, and he said, you know, he said, Richard, I, he says, you know, I, I need practically, of course, I have to get another job. I, I need the, the income. He's about my age. But he said, you know, I really, I don't want just another job. I really want to do something that counts. I really want to make wise use of the time that I have left. And so we see Jesus weeping over this nation that missed their moment. And it spoke to my heart. I hope it will speak to yours too. Let's redeem the time. If God is speaking to you even now, you know that it's a visit from the Holy Spirit and allow it to have His way in your heart. Finally here, we'll conclude verses 45 through 48. The next priority that comes to us as Jesus comes into Jerusalem as we see that God wants his house to be a house of prayer. Verse 45, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus comes, rides into town. He immediately goes to the temple and he begins to clean out the money changers and the, uh, the, the people that are selling the sacrificial animals, running them out. This is not Jesus' first visit to the temple where he has cleansed the temple. He has done this before. We know this from the other gospel accounts. But here, this would be his last time. But again, something in him is stirred. In the temple, they they had this business of religion going on. The high priests had set up this little uh, money exchange because you had to pay a tax when you came in. Of course, two million people coming in. We want to collect that temple tax. And what they would do is we will only receive it in the temple currency. And by the way, we have money changers to convert your money. But they paid a high premium. It became a money opportunity. But you also had to bring in animals that would be sacrificed at the temple. And so they would have their preferred animals at, of course, a highly marked up price. Here they are. These are people coming, God's God's people coming to be with God, coming to worship God, coming to pray, coming to commune with God and the spiritual leadership is making merchandise on them, turning it into opportunity for their own selfish greed. This, these are, you know, these Jesus clean, cleansing the temple. This is the rare time you see Jesus kind of rising up with some real force. This angers him. There's a zeal for God's house. There's a zeal for prayer in God's house. Jesus would teach in the temple. People were gathered in the temple. It's not that nothing could take place besides prayer in the temple, but everything should be anchored and centered around prayer. The temple was a place to meet with God. 
It was a place to commune and fellowship with him. God wanting to meet with his people. And they turned it into this money-making scheme. And Jesus purges it. And I think it speaks of God's heart today. What is God really after? I think he's after communing with his people. I think he really wants to have relationship with you and I. Prayer. That place of fellowship with him. You know, the scripture tells us that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a temple like they did in, in before Christ and, and before the, the resurrection. We don't have a, a temple to go to. We are the temple. God has moved into us. He dwells within His people. And when we gather, we together are the temple of God. We don't have to go to a place. We just have to gather in any place. And God is to be in our midst. God has promised that He would be with us. And what should be taking place in this temple? Prayer. Communion, relationship with Him. Uh, I'll close with a couple of references here. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? God lives in you. You're His temple. And that should be a, a, a constant prayer and, and, and uh, reflecting and, and spending time with Him. When we gather together, Peter says this, 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Each one of us kind of bringing something to form this spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our gatherings are the temple, the meeting place of God, personally and corporately. Oh, that it would be centered in prayer Yes, there's teaching, these, the Word of God. Yes, there's worship. Yes, there's fellowship and, and life, you know, joining together and encouraging one another. But it needs to be centered around God and His presence and our, our communing with Him with hearts of prayer. I'll close with just a couple of questions. Are there any tables that need turning over in your temple? Jesus came in and He cleaned house. Maybe He needs to do some cleaning in us. Are there any other things that need to be driven out to make room for him in his temple for prayer. Let's close now in prayer. Father, we thank you for this season as we come approaching the Easter, the Resurrection Sunday. And Lord, it seems that all of the scriptures kind of really find their center around this event. Because this is where man would be saved. And so, Lord, we are, we're mindful today that there is such truth here. There is really richness for us. There is priority from heaven that can be clearly seen. God, I ask that you would align my heart. God, I ask that I would be in step. Surely you have a priority today. Surely there is something on your mind at this moment, oh God. I want my heart to be aligned with that. I want to be in step with that. God, teach us these things through your word, by your spirit. And as we close and prepare now to celebrate at the Lord's communion table, if you keep your head bowed with me just for a moment longer, I, I do want to give an opportunity if you're here today and you need to respond to the Lord. You know, this may be your time of visitation. It may be that the Lord is speaking to you right now, the Holy Spirit is visiting your heart and he's knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying, come to me now and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior.
If you've never received Christ, I would love to pray for you. If he's speaking to you today and you want to invite Jesus, you want to embrace by faith what he has done for you at the cross, have your sins forgiven and invite him to become the Lord and Savior of your life, I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you are a Christian today, but you need, to, you, need a, you need a realignment. If you were honest, you would say, you know, I know the Lord, but I know that my life is not aligned with His plan and purpose for me. And I'd love to pray for you. Maybe God is asking you to rededicate yourself, recommit, to simply say, Lord, I need to come back to the priorities of allowing you to live your life through me. And I've been too distracted. I've been too, you know, off doing my thing. And I want to come back today and really recommit myself to you. I'd love to pray for you as well. If you're here today, you want to receive Jesus for the very first time, or you want to rededicate your life, I would ask you simply to raise your hand where you're seated, and I'm going to pray for you. Bless over here on my right, a couple of hands. Several hands on the left, Lord bless you. In the center as well number of hands. The Lord's speaking to you. That is the Holy Spirit. That is a visit from the Lord in your heart. It's good to respond to the Lord when he knocks. It's good to say, yes, Lord. Amen. I need you. I, I need to come back to you. Anybody else? A number of respond. Anybody? Any others before, before I pray? Bless you. Amen. The center. God bless you both. We're going to celebrate Jesus at his table just before I pray. Anyone else? Man, over my right. Amen. And so, Lord, for these hearts responding to you today, we ask that you would meet them. Lord, when you visit, when you knock, when you touch, it's because you love us. You're not coming angry. You're not coming to judge. You're coming to save. So, Lord, meet these hearts today. May they simply by faith come to you and confess and acknowledge, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse my sin today, not because I'm worthy of it in my own self, but because you love me and because you died on the cross for my sin. That's what it's all. The Passion Week is all about what you have done for me. And I receive it today by faith. And I want to celebrate it now with God's people at your communion table with peace and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.